picking up second week in our series called Uncensored. And um, I want to talk to you this morning, picking up from where we were in Genesis chapter 2 and, and chapter 3, where God said to Eve, did God actually say, or did God really say? And um, I want to answer the question this morning for all of us, this question, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust that it's true, it's accurate? More importantly, can I trust that it's God's word? And um, I want to dig in. And um, I'm, I really want to teach this morning. I'm going to try my best to behave myself and not get caught up in it and start preaching. Um, good luck. Don't cross your fingers or bet on that, but I'm going to do my best. Um, the, the day that we're living in is, as you know, you don't need me to tell you, it's, it's really crazy. And the, the, the power of the culture that is smothering Christianity and really challenging the next generation, it's out of control. And we're now very familiar with a, a new movement that is called progressive Christianity. And it's just that. There's an idea that, it, that Christianity can evolve and make progress. And it can even be better. And um, there's eight core beliefs. Two of, all of them are toxic. But they leave us with two real challenges to biblical, historical Orthodox Christianity, and that is, um, in progressive Christianity, there is a forfeiting of the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, that he um, conquered death and he was resurrected, and that's, there's a lot we could talk about each of these, but they're really giving that up, and, and they're, they're identifying Jesus as a good teacher, um, an example worthy to emulate, to follow. And then the second thing is that they're clearly forfeiting the idea that the Bible is what we have historically, traditionally taught it to be. The inerrant, incorruptible seed of God, uh, of his word. And um, those are just toxic. It's interesting that already... That the Barna research is that progressive Christianity, you would think, would make progress. And some of the mainline denominations, and I don't need to mention them, you know them. But th because they have caved, you would think, okay, they're accommodating culture. And that they're growing and making progress. The research is already strong in the fact that these churches are hemorrhaging people. Because what happens if progressive, progressive Christianity has its way and we all cave to the things that give us the, the access to the supernatural, a belief in faith that Jesus is the Son of God, that, it, that the Bible is exactly that. It's God's Word. What happens? Then you have a group of people getting together and there is no life. There is no power to accomplish or do anything except sit around and talk about, you know, deconstructing our faith that we grew up with. And progressive Christianity, um, if you think, well, thank God I've raised my kids. And progressive Christianity is seeping in everywhere. You know, it, it, pastors right now, we all know the parameters have really tightened on what can be said and on social media. 
you know, some pastor, or one of our families said last week they were on their way back from vacation and they were listening to the sermon live, I guess. And um, one of their kids said, what's Pastor Chuck trying to do? Get in Facebook jail? Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not trying to. But I'm not afraid of it. And, and so this, this series, I really want to keep my focus. This series, and you know, we're not just, we're not a pre-Christian culture. We're no longer a Christian culture. <clears throat> we're not a post-Christian culture. A lot of sociologists and people and Christians think we are. We are actually in an anti-Christian culture right now. And so you live differently. You preach differently. You minister differently. And um, so while that's our environment right now, here's what I want to say. It's okay to question your faith. It's okay to search for answers on whether the Bible is reliable. We're all going to be there, most of us, more than once. It happened to me as a young kid and then again when I was being trained Biblically, my degree is in biblical education. And um, so it's okay. And I want us to be able to take a good hard look at that qu- answering that question this morning. Can I trust the Bible? Now, from, from last week in Genesis chapter 2, you remember God told Adam, Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you cannot eat from th- this tree. For if you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of it, you will will surely die. And what is it, eight or nine verses later, Adam tells Eve what God said. Satan comes to Eve and he says, and look what it says, um, verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Can we all agree that's the truth? The serpent is sly. And relentless and crafty. The Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? And this is what he says. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then she answered to clarify. And she said, yeah, God said, we can have anything but that one thing. And if we do that, we'll die. And Satan then, listen. He appeals to what he knows she will like. And this is what he's doing in our culture right now with gender confusion, racial issues. We've made good things, as I talked about last week, a religion. And and God things are, are not appreciated or even believed in like we used to. And so Satan goes, did God actually say that? Is that what he really meant? For even he knows that when you eat of that, you're going to be like him. And he appealed to what all of us have. In God. We, yeah, we would like to have more godly qualities. But we have to get them on God's terms and not Satan's terms. And this is what Satan did with Jesus. He was trying to give him all the kingdoms of the world on Satan's terms. Not on God's terms, which included a cross. And so here we are this morning. Knowing that we are, oh, we are being bombarded everywhere. Every, you can't get on a plane, walk down the runway, look at what movies to watch without being just bombarded 
with a, a programming of your mind and your brain. It's everywhere. And I don't, I don't want to get off on that. And so, Pastor Chuck, why do you stand here this morning doing this? I stand here. This is my motivation. You ever heard the bridge is out story? Little small Midwestern town didn't have many visitors. And um, it was a, a, a night when it was raining like crazy. True story. And um, their bridge gave way because of the flooding that came through that little town. And it happened to be in a town that had a regional mental hospital. So in that particular area, there was just this general fear that everybody had. And even in a dark, rainy night, there was this, you know, there were spirits around this, this, this whole concept of mental health in their minds. And the bridge had gone out. And there was a family with two of their children, mother and father. And as they approached that bridge, they were going very slow because it was raining that hard. And they literally saw a man with his shirt off waving it like this. And the children begged the dad to not get out of the car. But they couldn't cross. And then the mom said, don't get out of the car. And he's like, I, we ha- I have to get out. He got out and he walked up to the man and the man said, listen, the bridge is out and a van load with children just went over the bridge and the dad wrapped his arm around the man and they both began to weep and he said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm standing here this morning going, the bridge is out. Listen, it doesn't matter who's right or who's I'm trying to keep you and our children from going over the bridge. And that's my motivation this morning. So let's answer the question. Why do you, Pastor Chuck, trust that the Bible is true? Why do I trust it as the word of God? A year and a half ago, I preached a sermon and I used Vody Balcom's definition or, or his reply to why he believes the Bible. And I've never seen anything better than this. I trust the Bible because, and we're not going to get to break this down because it would take a whole weekend seminar to do it, but Vody says he trusts the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses. Everybody say eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and who claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. We don't have time to break that down, but that is brilliant. So there's three reasons I want to give you this morning why I believe in the Bible. And the first one is, is it's so simple it may feel insulting. I believe the Bible is true. I believe it's the word of God because the Bible stands on its own. The Bible is self-evident. It defends itself. Hundreds of years early in the Bible, it gives prophecies that later are fulfilled against all odds. The Bible can stand on its own. The word scripture means inspired. And Jesus quoted in the New Testament from three-fourths, from 29 or 30 of the 39 books in the Old Testament. So he, the word, The scriptures prophesied about him and he's reflecting back on, remember what the God inspired scriptures say about me. Um, He always called them the scriptures. 
Jesus said when he was tempted by Satan in the, in the, the, the wilderness, he, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He first said, he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And he said, man does not live on bread alone, but everywhere it proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then he quotes from Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12 in, in response to, hey, throw yourself off. God will protect. He'll send angels. And, and listen, Satan is like rat poison. Rat poison is 97% a delicacy for a rat. They love it. It's the 3% that kills you. And this is what Satan does. And he says, hey, God, he says he'll send angels concerning you and watch over you. And Jesus then quotes, he says, do not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the third time. And so Jesus stands as the living word, quoting the inspired word that brings deliverance and victory against the enemy. And we, there's a lesson there for us. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the ESV, Paul says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How many of you have realized the scripture, it is profitable? Oh, it's profitable. It, it works. Like, later I'll talk about this. You know, how do you raise children? Not according to Focus on the Family. Or Oprah. Unless they're teaching us what comes from the Word. How do you date? You look in the Bible. And it says don't. So you don't date. Can I get a witness? All parents up in here. <laughs> a word coming out this morning. You court. How do you get, how do you pick who you're going to get married? How do you have a marriage? How do you discover your career? How do you as a church plan worship services? Right here. How do you design the government? Who leads the church and how? It's all right here. All scripture is profitable and it works. And those who've tried it out have discovered it truly does work. This word, um, all scripture is God breathed or breathed out by God is the word theonoustos. Theo, which means God. Noustos, which means breathed. All scripture is God. When I'm talking right now, I'm taking in a breath and then I'm exhaling as I speak. And this is what the word is. We have drills and tools. They're not driven, driven by electricity. They're driven by air, a pneumatic drill. You see, God breathed out, or he spoke, and man breathed it in. You've heard me say this before. Let me give you this illustration. I know some of you is the second or third time you've seen this. But sometime during the week, I will literally take my Bible when I realize what passage God wants me to bring. And I will literally do this. And I will say, God, I breathe this in so by Sunday morning it will marinate in me. Because I know what you did, God, was you did this. And if I can do this and come here on Sunday and go, and you go, 
we'll go out there and we'll go. Not now in a pandemic. You don't want to be too close when you do it. But it literally, it moves me to think about that. It's that real. All scripture is God breathed. Now, well, Pastor Chuck, men wrote the Bible. So how can it be true if men wrote the Bible? Well, God uses men and women. Men and women fly 10-ton airplanes five miles in the air, and you've never met them, and you'll get on a plane and fly with them to Hawaii. Men, God's blessed men. God became a man. If you have a problem, you know, trusting in things men have written, you know, in your next um, calculus test, if you fail it, Pythagorean theory or whatever it's called, <laughs> you, you just tell them, say, I, I don't accept that. Because <laughs> a man wrote that. God became a man. God partners with men. Yes, we have the word that came to us by men, but it was men and women that God inspired. He breathed upon them and gave them the word. Now, if that was the only thing, we would have some challenges. But the second reason why I believe the Bible is the word of God is because the Bible is amazing. It's a the book of Buddha is the writings of one man. The Quran is the writings of one man, Muhammad. About 23 years of his life. Made 62 prophecies. Only 27 of them came true. Fastest growing religion in the world. And his book was written or collected posthumously. The Bible is amazing. 66 books. 40 different authors over a period of roughly 15, 1600 years. And there is an amazing single thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. There's congruency that just has to be supernatural. The prophecies are amazing. Please listen to me. I want to deposit something in, that needs to be in your DNA and in, on the hard drive of your faith. The prophecies are amazing. Isaiah and Micah, 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. That had never happened before. Micah prophesied where Jesus would be born, in Bethlehem, even though he never lived there. Amazing prophecies. David wrote in Psalm 22 about the crucifixion in incredible detail. Listen to me. A thousand years before Jesus was crucified. 503 years before anyone had ever been crucified. And David in Psalm 22 gives us the details about how he would be crucified. Who would be between him? What would happen? What would gush out? It's incredible. The Bible is amazing. Um, Daniel, a lot of people don't know this when we start talking about the, 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 the prophecies and the fulfillment. We, we look at the simple things as it relates to Jesus. And Daniel gets a little bit like Revelation. 
And so people get confused. But Daniel writes in 500 B.C. about, listen, a great empire that dominates the world and it is suddenly cut off. Then he says that empire is divided into four empires and those four become two, then become one. And then the Messiah will come. 500 years before Jesus ever came. That's what he prophesied. In 300 BC, Alexander the Great ruled the greatest empire the world knew at that time. He dominated the whole world. And then at 32 years old, he is suddenly killed. And his four generals get four different parts of his empire. And then those four generals go to two. And then we have the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires. And then those two go from two to one. The Roman Empire. And then guess what? Jesus is born. 500 years before it happened. In incredible detail. It's amazing. The Bible is so accurate. Historians have been astounded by the reliability and accuracy of the Holy Bible for many years. Many smart people, smarter than me, have set out to prove that the Bible is false and Christianity is a hoax. Only to be converted themselves. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor and writer. Mere Christianity in the Chronicles of Narnia. Alistair McGrath a biochemist and Christian theologian who founded scientific theology. Simon Greenleaf, one of the founders of Harvard Law School, set out to disprove Christianity. And in his investigative research, became a believer. William J. Murray of Madeline Murray O'Hare, whose mother called him the plaintiff to get school, uh, the Bible and prayer out of school. He was the one named as the plaintiff. And she won that case and the Bible is now out of the school and, and prayer is out of the school. And guess what happened? That son became a believer. <laughs> the irony of that, Lee Strobel former avowed atheist from Chicago who wrote for the Chicago Tribune, an avowed atheist and investigative journalist, was converted by his own research intended to test the veracity of scriptural claims concerning Jesus. And now he's written books like The The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ. Dr. Bruce Metzger, Princeton Theological Seminary, He says the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, it is safe for any scholar to say that 99.6 of those lines in the New Testament have been corroborated by other historical documents outside of the faith and outside of the Bible. When you got Princeton saying things like this, how many of you know? It might be true. History confirms it. Other documents confirm what has been written in it. No book has been studied more, scrutinized more. It has always stood the test and been proven true again 
and again and again. Dictators have tried to destroy the Bible. Cultures have outlawed the Bible. Governments have canceled the ones who believe it, teach it, and preach it. Christians have been persecuted and martyred for having copies of it. And here it is, still standing as the best-selling book of all time. In fact, every year it's the best-selling book for that year. In Truth Magazine, Cecil Willis writes this. Please listen, it's rather long. Even in New Testament, in the New Testament, we read of those who violently sought to overthrow the cause of Christ. We read of disciples dying a martyr's death because of their faith. Early in the history of Christianity, Clement of Alexandria wrote, Many martyrs are daily burned crucified and beheaded before our eyes. For many years, Christianity was outlawed by the Roman government. Please listen. From the time of Trajan, who reigned from 98 to 117, until Constantine, who came 300 AD, virtually every one of the Roman emperors was opposed to Christianity. It is true that not, not all of them actively tried to suppress it, but few of them encouraged Christianity in any way. Many of their efforts were directed toward destroying the Bible. Of Diocletian, 284 to 316, the ruler immediately preceding Constantine. Eusebius, the historian, said about him right before Constantine, he said this, Royal edicts were published everywhere commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and the scriptures destroyed by fire. Diocletian went on to say that if one had a copy of the scriptures and did not surrender it to be burned, if it were discovered, that person would be killed. Furthermore, if any others should know of one who had a copy of the scriptures and did not report it, he also will be killed. During this time, many, many copies of the Bible were burned. Copies laboriously written in longhand. Of this period, the historian Newman said, multitudes hastened to deny the faith and to surrender their copies of the scriptures. Many more bore the most horrible tortures and refused with their last breath to surrender the scriptures or in any way to compromise themselves. After the edict had been forced, enforced for two years, Diocletian boasted. He said this, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. But had he completely destroyed it? History tells us that the very next ruler, Constantine, became a Christian. He requested that copies of the scriptures be made for all the churches. But alas, Diocletian had completely obliterated the word of God. After Constantine offered a substantial reward for any copies of the scriptures, within 25 hours, 50 copies of the Bible were brought to him. Listen, the Bible has had many enemies, even those that professed on some occasions to be its friends under other circumstances turned enemy to it. During the Middle Ages, for example, the Roman Catholic Church 
burned thousands of copies of the Bible. Another story for another sermon. But in spite of it, the Bible lives on. Listen to this. Voltaire, the noted French philosopher or infidel who died in 1778, made his attempt to destroy the Bible. He boldly made the prediction that within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity would have been swept from existence into oblivion. Voltaire's efforts and bold prophecy failed. In fact, within 100 years, the very printing press upon which Voltaire had printed his atheistic literature was being used to print copies of the Bible. And afterward, his very own house was now owned by the French Bible Society. And Voltaire and all of his cohorts have failed miserably. Come on, somebody. Did God actually say? Now, there's... Um, I, I, I debated whether I should do this, but I just feel... Um, I, I want to deposit this. And I know some of you have heard me say this on multiple occasions. But as a kid, when I traveled speaking in... In youth settings, in conferences, there's a book called Science Speaks. And uh, there's a, I forget the name of the professor now, at Edmonton University, who got approval to do a, um, a project with 600 of his students. And they put to mathematical probability the chance that a man could come 700 years after a prophecy and be born in that particular area. And so that was the first thing they did. And they said, they ran the numbers and they said, for, for a person to be born in Bethlehem 700 years after that prophecy and be the Messiah is one out of 300,000. And that's not a big deal. And they missed it. And they admitted it. They didn't even realize that Jesus never lived in Bethlehem. And they were like, oh, wow. This is a bunch of high-minded intellectuals trying to mess around with Scripture. And there's a lot of them messed around and got messed on and got messed up. And so they were like, oh, wow. We don't even know how to. So they moved on. And they said, all right, let's put to probability there's 332 prophecies in the old testament about jesus when he would come where he would come how he would come how he would die do you know there are prophecies that he would be born uh, he would be crucified between um, two thieves that one of his followers 700 years before it happened one of his followers would betray him it actually even says for 30 pieces of silver the list, three, so they said, you know what? It's hard to prove all 332 of those prophecies. Let's look and see what prophecies are provable of the 300. Like other documents and history, not faith and preachers and TBN and Benny Hinn and Chuck Ramsey. You know, how can, what do we know was fulfilled? And they identified there's 54 prophecies that history says it happened just like they said it would and they said wow we can't run the numbers won't work for 54 so they said just listen to this they said 
What about if we, what's the chance it could fulfill eight prophecies? And they ran the numbers. And uh, they presented this to the American um, Scientific Affiliation. And it was approved as bona fide research. And they said, the chance that one man could come hundreds of years later and fulfill eight of those 332 prophecies is one out of ten to the 17th power. How I many you know that's, that's a huge number? That's, not, that's, that's the number ten with 17 zeros. It's not million, billion, trillion, quadrillion. I think it's the next one. Anybody know what that is? It's like how much money Star Wars made. That's it's like right there. Um, and they knew nobody's going to be able to get their arms around that that large of a number. And so they said, let's illustrate it. And they said, you would take that number, 10 to the 17th power, if you had silver dollar coins and you put them on the, in the state of Texas, two feet deep. How I many you know that's a lot of money? And you take one of those coins and put a red X on it and put it out there. And then you take a man, put him anywhere in Texas, spin him around 10 times, blindfold him and tell him, go pick out one coin. That's the chance that a man could come hundreds of years later and fulfill eight of the prophecies. Jesus didn't fulfill eight or 28 or 54. He fulfilled 332 of the prophets. Listen, this, when we say the Bible is amazing, don't let popular media and, and the news report to you the facts about the Bible. Listen, the Bible can stand on its own. The Bible is amazing. Listen, Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfilled every one of those prophecies. Let me tell you what else the Bible says. You need to know this, that God has exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. That one day, every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We might as well go ahead and do it now. Come on, if you're going to clap, praise his name. Yes, Lord. The third reason I believe in the Bible is I've gotten to know the author personally. Anybody else? We've discussed some pretty solid evidence that gives us a strong case for the, the Bible being true. But at some point, you have to take a step of faith. And it's designed that way. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You're not going to get all every single answer. That's why he invites you into relationships so you won't just have head knowledge. Head knowledge is what happened to the Pharisees. And it's what's happening to some extreme groups today. You've got to enter into relationship with the author to realize the word is alive and active and sharper than double-edged sword. I know the author. Now, it's not a leap of faith. It's a step of faith. Amen? John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh. I said this earlier. God became a man. The word, Jesus, became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father who came full of grace and truth. You know how we know the Bible is true? Because the word became flesh and lived on this earth. And the word is still becoming flesh. Um, What do you mean by that, Pastor Chuck? Here's what I mean. Everybody listen closely. Again, I know many of y'all have heard this story. Some of y'all know me for 35 years. Here's the deal. I was your run-of-the-mill high school dude in 10th grade, raised in a pastor's home, loved chase girls, play sports. And um, I got serious when I was 16 years old. I preached my first sermon when I was 16 years old, of all times, on October 31st. How cool is that? I thought that was cool. I'm not... (laughs) Ain't no Halloween going to keep me from, you know. Um, But I I had something happen to me where I said, I've heard all my life the Bible. Bible." My mom said something one time to me, and she she swore until she died she never said it, but she said it. And she's not here to defend herself anymore, so um, God will have to prove. But one time she was joking around. I was raised with such reverence and respect for the Bible. Anybody remember those that just, the Bible. And my mom said, oh, don't, don't ever let anything sit on top of a Bible. It's a sin. I'm like, wow. To this day, if my Bible is in my Jeep or and, and something like a key can, you know, Candace can sit her in hand. I'm like, honey, slide over. <laughs> it's like, I can't breathe. If something's on my Bible. <laughs> Seriously. Like, you'll notice I'll never have my phone or anything sitting on top. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's a sin, but something happened. It's the reverence, it's the reverence for the word. And, and we were raised, many of y'all were raised, you never questioned the word. Because it worked, and you knew it did. And you knew the author. When I was 16 years old, I said to myself, I'm going to read the Bible every day. And I said it this way, if it kills me. And it did. It killed me. My flesh. God did some miracles. I can remember going. I, I didn't have a. I wasn't saying I'm going to read the Bible through in a year. I wasn't going. I did, never said I'm going to read a whole chapter tonight. I, I don't know where it came from. I think it was just Holy Spirit. I got baptized in the Holy Spirit at 11 years old. And Holy Spirit began to woo me and draw me. I didn't have a youth pastor. My dad never challenged me. He never said. I said, all right, I'm going to read the Bible until I get something. I didn't know it at that point, but what it was, I was going to read until I I had Holy Spirit speak to me. And you may go, oh, you're a pastor. You're born to be a pastor. You've been religious and churchy and a Jesus nerd your whole life. I was not that, but became that. Listen. Our seventh child right now, Candace and I are elated. A couple weeks ago, he said, Dad, can we swing back by your office? I left my Bible. Got in my Jeep and had his little notepad and his pen and his Bible. And he wasn't being, you know, pharisaical. And I've watched, and I'm like, okay, at 13 years old, Daryl said, this book will keep you from sin. 
and sin will keep you from this book. Some of you, if you did two things, some of you that struggle, if all you did was hang around solid Christian people more, fellowship, get involved, and some of you have never done this. I know you, you like a good sermon, you're involved in church, but you're missing out on your manna every morning. And you're making it, and you're a good guy. But if you started getting into this, it will, it will I, I can't even describe what it will do to you. If you'll get into this, the Bible is amazing. And if you'll get to know the author personally, you will discover how amazing it is. Anybody want to just say, he's right. Anybody want to? Come on. Hallelujah. Now I'm closing with this right here. You know, these are principles that I teach. They run in and out of a lot of different sermons. But Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of God is living and active. Everybody say living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Everybody look right here. What does that mean? It's, it's alive. How can a book be alive? This one can. I will read John chapter 4 once a year for 20 years. And there is something in there every year that wasn't in there last year. It just got there. You might know what I'm talking about. I'll be like, oh, praying about something. And I can be in Leviticus. And God will speak to me about what I'm praying. I can be mad at Candace and praying for her because she's got some issues. And I'll be in Proverbs and God will tell me it ain't Candace. Have you ever read? It's alive. I'm serious. I can be, it can be a financial issue, a fear issue. It can be a pandemic. It can be a church issue. It can be a parenting issue. No matter where I am, it's alive. And it will go, I know what you need. Let me talk to you a second. Anybody know what I'm saying is absolute truth. It's active. Now, I'm going to come back to that word active. But the, the last, look at what the last part of that says. Um, the division of soul and of spirit. There, there's a whole sermon right there. The way I think, my, my soul, the way I think, um, the way I make decisions, and the way I feel, my soul. The word can separate that from my spirit. And there's times that, this is what counselors do. They try and help you go, you're thinking wrong. You shouldn't feel that. You feel that way because you're thinking. You've made some decisions. We got, that's what counselors are trying to do. And the Bible says, that the word's live and active, and it can get in those places. And look what it, it goes on to say, not just that, but of joints and of marrow. How many of you need the word of God to ever get in your marrow? You know, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, what the, you know what that B part of that verse is saying? God can say things to you that you won't let anybody else say to you. How many of you know sometimes your wife needs God to say some things that she won't hear from anybody else? I see you back there, Jason. You better be careful. Pastor Mon, pray for that guy sitting right in front of you. I saw you.
Lord, touch his heart. He's, he, he. Now let's go back to this. It's active. Hear me, everybody. In a culture that's trying to stamp out, ebb out, reduce Christianity, cancel culture, don't. And I'm in this series called Uncensored, and we're going to take on sexuality, race, and a few other things this summer. And it's not, ooh, it's uncensored. I can't wait for Pastor Chuck to let him have it. No, it's, that's not, it's this is going to be uncensored. This is going to go out. And when this goes out, it's active. What do I mean? Well, remember in Genesis, the Bible says in chapter one, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep and there was nothing but darkness and chaos. And God spoke. And the Holy Spirit was just sitting there waiting. And when he heard, let there be light. The word is active. God said it, light. How many of you have ever had the Holy Spirit brooding over your chaos? You just need a word from God to turn chaos into order, darkness into light. Are y'all out there? It's active. We see it all through scripture. Why do I, why is one of the core values of our church unapologetic preaching of God's word? Because Oprah and Dr. Phil and Pastor Chuck are not eternal. And when we preach the word, Isaiah chapter 55 says, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. And as Pastor Mike said a few weeks ago, as if you don't know how high, he said, as the heavens are over the earth. That's how, how much higher my ways are. But everybody listen. He went on to say, that's why I sent my word. And it will never come back empty or void. It will always accomplish that which I intend for it to accomplish. As the dew and the rains fall from heaven and they produce life in the earth, so will my word. It will be active. This is why in, when the angel came to Mary and, and, and the angel said, I know we've got an impossible situation, but you're going to have a child. And she said, ah, you got the wrong person. I'm a virgin. He goes, I know. And she goes, wow, how will that word come true? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will, listen, will overshadow you. And then what did she say? Listen, you've never faced a more impossible situation than Mary faced. With a rhema word, a promise that it's not possible. What did we say earlier? There's nothing our God can't do. Can I get a witness? So when the angel said to Mary, oh, Holy Spirit will take care of it. She said this. All right. May it be unto me according to your word. When you read the word and you have an open spirit and an open heart and you go, I don't know how. But I'm down with that. I receive that. The word itself is active and it activates the faith. Listen, do you know one of the most poorly translated verses in all of the Bibles, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, which most of us say, for nothing shall be impossible with God. 
Do you know that's one of the most poorly translated verses because in the original language, it sounds too good to be true. It's translated more like this. The word itself has the capacity in itself to fulfill itself. Basically, what Luke 137 says, if God said it, it's going to happen. If you say, may it be unto me, I receive it all. Man, I just feel so much. I want to apply. You may be here. i got addictions. I don't know how I can ever. I've got anger like I can't even describe. I've got fear and doubt. And the culture. Let God speak into that situation. Let the word go forth and let it activate the life. of You know, on and on it goes. And there's three dozen pictures I've preached through the years. In John 8, remember Jesus? The woman is brought, caught in the act of adultery. And the religious people who had been her customers probably said, hey, trying to trick Jesus. The law says a woman like that caught in the act ought to be killed. But you've been preaching all this mercy and grace stuff. What do you think? And Jesus didn't say anything. Remember, he just stooped down and he wrote. It's the only thing God has ever written with his own hand. And we don't know what he said. But we know what he said with his mouth. Let whoever is without sin, y'all go ahead. You, you start. You throw the first one. And the Bible says they dropped their rocks and they begin to leave from the older to the younger. They were all gone because they were probably guilty. And then Jesus looked at her and he said, who condemns you, ma'am? She said, no. He said, neither do I. And then here's what he said. Go and sin no more. I don't have to know what the rest of her life was like. That experience and him saying, go and live properly. I guarantee you she went and lived properly. Y'all out there, it's the, it's the power of the act. I, I, another one, uh, I think, is it Mark 2 when the friends bring the paralytic and they cut the roof open and lower him down? And Jesus goes, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, whoa, you can't say that. Because we can't prove it. We don't know if they're okay. Just to prove that his sins are forgiven. By the way, get up, take up your bed and walk too. What did he do? Jesus spoke the word, then confirmed the word, and then the word fulfilled itself. And the guy got up, rolled up his bed and carried it home. Are y'all out there this morning? <laughs> Praise your name, Lord. Brothers and sisters, as a vertical church, we believe in the unashamed adoration of God's Son. We worship. It's not about music and singers and musicians. It's about worship. And I thank God for this worship team that leads us in worship. Vertical church is about the unapologetic preaching of God's Word. It's not a Fox News, right wing, southern, ah, but it is thus saith the word of God. How many of you value the word? How many of you will pray that in this church we will love the word, preach the word, teach the word, live the word, be shaped by the word, declare the word, and we'll see the word be fulfilled. Come on. Amen. And then thirdly, in a vertical church, unceasing prayer from God's people. And then lastly, unafraid witnessing of the good news of the gospel. And it starts right here. May we declare.
the loving truth of God's word. So that's why I believe the Bible is true. Is there anybody else in this room that would stand this morning and say, I'm with you, Pastor Chuck. I believe it's true too. Come on, stand up. Thank you, Father. Father, I thank you for this hungry group of men and women. They're hungry. I'm hungry. We need manna, rhema word. Not some emotional hype of some Bible belt, twisted, emotional, religious experience. We want the rhema word of God. The word that shapes and feeds and directs. We praise you, Lord. And I pray in this room, even right now, there would be a heart of every person to not just know the word, but to know the author and his heart so that we can appreciate the word and be in loving relationship with you. And I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that we would all have a heart like Mary to say, all right, may it be unto me according to your word. Oh, Lord, come on, everybody in your business, may it be according to his word. In your marriage, may it be according to his word. In our nation, regardless, may it be according to his word. In race relations, may it be according to his word. In every need, in everything we face, may it be according to his word. I pray, Father, for this Daniel generation that's growing up in high-minded intellectualism. I pray against the, the lies of popular culture and media and these kids that spend time on Snapchat, Insta. I pray, Father, the, the millions of messages that they get, I pray that they would be like Daniel and they would resolve not to defile themselves. We praise you, Lord. Give us wisdom. Fill us with your spirit. Perform your word. Confirm your word. And may we be raised up families of your word. World changers, difference makers. And may this, this room, this atmosphere in here, come on, listen to me. May this room be an atmosphere of world changers, of adults, 65, 75, 52-year-old world changers shaped by your word. May this be an atmosphere where the supernatural signs and wonders are a regular occurrence because we are declaring your word and we're seeing paralytics take up their bed, roll it up and walk and carry it home. We're seeing those addicted being set free because they go, I don't know how. I've tried everything, but may it be unto me according to your word. And then Holy Spirit, you come like you did in Mary and conceive that word. And may it grow and, and, and produce fruit in the name of Jesus. If you're, I just feel led to do this. If you're here with nobody looking around and you go, you know what? I don't know the author of the word, but I would like to get to know him. It's called salvation. And he sent his word not to tell you what to do, but to reveal his heart. The bridge is out. And he comes to protect you and preserve you. If you're here this morning, you go, I don't know the author, but I would like to get to know him. I'm ready to give my life to Christ and accept the work of Jesus on the cross.
to pay the penalty for my salvation. If you're here this morning, you feel Holy Spirit prompting you. I'm going to give you the opportunity on the count of three. I want you to raise your hand if that's you and God is speaking to you. You don't have to have it all figured out. You just have to say, okay, I'm open to that. Just like Mary said, if you're here, raise your hand on three. Ready? One, two, three. Raise your hand. If you're here, God bless you. Anybody else? Pray with me in the name of Jesus. If you raised your hand this morning, I saw one hand go up, maybe two. If you're here this morning and you want to get to know the author, I want you to repeat this prayer with all of us. Everybody join me. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you. I want you and I need you in my life. I make you my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Change me. Transform me. I surrender to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it from your heart, may the life of Jesus spring forth and be released in you. And may he, you begin this adventurous ride called Christianity in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you're thankful this morning for his presence and for his word, can we just one more time express our love and appreciation to him? We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Father. Now I speak his word from Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance and give you peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great afternoon, a good week. We love you.